And now two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Possible new elections in Malaysia. I'll be speaking with Lee Tan and also about the latest on the Linus plant in Kuantan. Part two of an interview with Fred Fuentes and the upcoming elections in Venezuela. Looking at prospects for the vote next week on the referendum in New Caledonia. It was a webinar and it features Nick McClellan with two women from New Caledonia. And week three in the Old Bailey for Julian Assange. I'll be speaking with activist and journalist Jacob Gregg. But first, it's a welcome to The Week That Was with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when we were all celebrating the exciting news for the environment as the government, via the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, announced renewable energy funding would be poured into solar and wind energy to replace fossils, close down highly polluting coal-fired power stations, ban the extraction of highly polluting gas with its methane emissions to boot, end our dependence on highly polluting oil including carcinogenic diesel, and guarantee we reach zero emissions by as early as next year or 2022 at the latest. We will lead the world in reaching zero emissions, Angus boasted at the National Press, Press Club. OK, OK, slight exaggeration, if a 100% exaggeration can be considered slight. Like Angus and Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo's assertion that their fossil solution to fossil pollution will reduce emissions by oodles and we could reach zero emissions by as soon as 2150 or the end of the world, whichever comes first. Because those who think all these commitments to zero emissions by 2050 are a convenient way to pull a year from the hat far enough away to avoid doing anything much but talk about it, clearly 2050 is far too soon for Angus, Scuttledem and their team of fossils to make a commitment. But they did declare that renewable energy would no longer qualify for renewable energy funding, did commit to withdrawing all renewable energy funding from renewable energy because it doesn't need public largesse, unlike the struggling corporate fossils. We will direct renewable energy funding to good, clean gas and beautiful, beautiful coal uh, which could offer an explanation for, help explain their reluctance to set a zero emissions target. Although they assure us funding good, clean gas and beautiful, beautiful coal will slash our emissions, presumably because they're now renewable. They renew our emissions by the day. Angus looked very pleased with himself. We will take our fossil solution to fossil pollution to the next meeting to discuss progress on Paris commitments, which should, should see Trouble was he a lay-down misere to take out the meeting's popularity prize, given most of the others make a commitment to zero emissions and some of them even take it seriously. And don't forget the biggest threat to Trouble was his popularity, the U.S. of the UN of the US of the world won't be there because big supremo Donald Trump or the poor withdrew from the Paris Agreement because he knows the world is about to get cooler. Not as cold as the reception he'd get if he did show his face, although he obviously believes that he could dictate to the gathering from afar, threaten them with economic retaliation, for instance, 
if they do anything as irresponsible as threaten the great corporate fossils' profits, great U.S. corporate fossils' profits, based on his assumption that he has a right to trigger a clause in the Iran nuclear deal ordering every country in the world, except Iran, to boycott Iran under threat of U.S. of imposed economic death, even though he also withdrew from that agreement, justifying his dictating to the world on the U.S. of's God-given role to run the world. God bless America. Should Donald be re-elected, it will show God does not bless America. Whereas should Joe Biden capital win the election, it will show God does not bless America. Lose, lose. Woman arrested this week for allegedly sending poison in the mail to Donald. Surely she didn't think it would get to him. Anyway, to show how evil she is, news reports said when captured, she also was carrying a gun. A gun. Evil. Oh, but, but hang on. Donald and his supporters say carrying a gun is another God-given right, sign of a great American. Wish they'd get their story straight. It's also Donald's God-given right to appoint the Supreme Court bench. The cummy, lefty, violent-in-the-streets Democrats appoint the worst judges ever, ever. And speaking of God, he has nominated Amy Catholic Barrett. If you're pregnant, bear it who said she would rule based on the law, as given us by the dear baby Jesus. God bless America, it'll sure as hell need it. In the wake of recent events, one of Trubaluozzi's truly great minds, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Overseeing Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, warned foreign reporters, brackets, no one in particular in mind, close brackets, foreign journalists, they would face scrutiny if they provided a slanted view to a particular community, brackets, no one in particular in mind, close brackets, although slanted view may have been a, a touch insensitive. If they're reporting fairly on, you know, the news that's, far, that's fine, but, but if they're here, like, you know, providing a slanted view to a particular, like, you know, community, then we have concern with that. If there are attempts with, like, interference or, like, you know, conducting espionage-style activities, then we have a problem with, you know, like that. Let's hope he doesn't apply that principle to the Troubler Wazzy media or the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin and Lord Rupert's media generally will be under serious threat. And wouldn't we miss them? For instance, we wouldn't know just how evil is Big State Supremo the pejorative Dan, the COVID-19 second wave like manna from heaven for Lord Rupert and the team, who have never forgiven the electorate for twice defying their orders and electing the pejorative. Dan himself and the whole government structure providing manna by taking out the Topsy Award, not of the week, but more like the century, when we discovered nobody, absolutely nobody, contracted out the quarantine security to the super-efficient private sector. No government minister, no senior bureaucrat, nobody, not one person, especially the former minister whom some people thought had something to do, something to do with health, Jenny McKickus when I'm down, how dare they try to blame her for health problems? So it seems the private security lots just turned up and by sheer chance have to turn up at the very spots where people were in quarantine. Topsy security. Although seeing this essential of economics contracting out by the inefficient bloated hand of the public sector is called contracting out, 
we might have thought someone could produce, yes, you guessed it, a contract signed by somebody, which would be a reasonable starting point to maybe trace who was responsible. Except, of course, it was the Beecher-Stowe effect, Topsy. We might have thought the pejorative Dan and the team could have at least got together and come up with some sort of explanation other than no idea. And this week, Manor and Caviar from, as a right-wing factional heavy, decided to carry out her factional warfare on the front pages of the Lord Rupert Media. We could say nothing like a bit of class solidarity, but then I suppose you've got to have a class position in the first place. Would never use the term class traitor in relation to the next item, as the Donald Trample the Poor Get Your Story Straight Award of the Week to Broadie Boy to Track Parvenu, Eddie McGuire People Poor, after he was photographed at a Gold Coast nightclub whooping it up, which some commentators thought a bit rough given footballers, say Collie Wobble footballers who did that would be breaking the rules of the footy hub. But Eddie pointed out he was there as a reporter and a citizen of Queensland. That last bit's interesting. Anyway, he took his son and a couple of telly crew to dinner, and then the restaurant people said, come over and have a drink. My boy is 19, and he hasn't been out for the best part of six months, so I took him across and bought him a beer. What a good father. That was Sunday. By Monday, Eddie suddenly remembered he was on a fact-finding mission for the hospitality industry in his role as a Visit Victoria board member, something he'd totally forgotten the day before when he was a citizen of Queensland. How many drinks did he buy? Eddie, your Donald Trample the Poor Get Your Story Straight Award is on its way. Caring employers are so concerned with the health of evil union officials, take ship owner City Pacific, which so cares for maritime union officials' health, it banned them from entering an iron ore carrier in the Pilbara because of concerns over COVID-19. And the union officials, instead of being grateful that a caring employer so cares about them, took them to the fair work Trubler was he no longer work choices just looks like it con mission, which ruled this week the company was correct. It could ban union officials. In fact, finally, it's increasingly obvious lazy avaricious workers need others to think for them, know what's good for them for them, like the Minister for Caring Employer Relations, Christa, Christian Portaloo, who said we need simplified awards, all in pay rates for weekdays and weekends, for instance, and we need a solution to award conditions that pay part-time as overtime for hours beyond their set roster, but which discourage employers from offering extra hours. Now, that's bad for jobs and job growth, and that's bad for the business. Yeah, Christian, and it's not that good for the workers who lose their penalty rates at overtime either, although it must be, because we know Christian only has those workers' interests at heart. Good afternoon. Hey, y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. In February this year, after less than two years into his second prime ministership, Mahathir Mohamed 
succumbed to a coup following a week of political turmoil in Malaysia, claiming he was betrayed. He had replaced disgraced PM Najib Razak, who had ruled for just over nine years, and since March, Muhyiddin Yassir has had the title, but it would appear that his days could be numbered. Lee Tan has been following events in Malaysia, and Lee, we're talking today about what appears to be a new round of political turmoil in Malaysia. Only six months since Mohund Yassim took control. Who's rocking the boat this time? Okay, this time is actually Anwar Ibrahim, who is the leader of his party, which is the Pakatan Rakyat Malaysia PKR. In the midst of a state election happening, in the East Malaysian state of Sabah. It's all very complicated. Yeah, there's all kinds of news about why this is happening. But Anwar Ibrahim, the press conference, asserted that he's now got enough member of parliament to form a new government, the exact composition of the new government as to which parties and which MPs are in it, we don't know. He was seeking an audience with the Agong, or the king, the constitutional king or monarch of uh, Malaysia to verify his government. But the Agong, or the king, has just kind of returned home from uh, a major heart condition from the hospital. So the king could not see him. Meanwhile, the drama continues with the voters speculating and and wondering, you know, which MP has since jumped from which party to which party, which is quite common in Malaysia because of the money politics. So at this stage, we still haven't got any update from the press conference that Anwar Ibrahim has given. But, you know, everyone's making all sorts of predictions. Anyway, yep. Just in case people might not remember him, he goes back a long way, doesn't Mm. he? Oh, yes, very much so. He was once the deputy prime minister under the Mahathir Mohamad government back in the 2000s, and he was meant to be Mahathir's successor. But uh, he was challenging Mahathir Mohamad's prime ministership and also as the leader of uh, AMNO at that time. AMNO is a Malay-led political party that has basically ruled Malaysia together with a couple of uh, a few others, minor parties, all race-based, you know, the Indian minority and the Chinese minority. Now, since then, um, Mahathir has basically jailed Anwar Ibrahim under the Internal Security Act based on some trumped-up charges, you know, like corruption and sodomy and stuff like that. It became, you know, a highly spectacular type of um, legal wrangle in Malaysia where mattresses were dragged to the courtroom and so on and so forth, just to prove that, you know, he's uh, sodomized several people in a supposedly Muslim country that, you know, in Mahathir's eye, it's meant to be effective. But as a result of that kind of dirty politicking, 
a new party was formed by Anwar Ibrahim's wife and other people from UMNO who were dissatisfied with Mahathir's doing back then. Um, and that's when the PKR, the PKR party, the People's Freedom Party was formed, or People's Alliance Party. And of course, in 2018, at a federal election, Anwar Ibrahim, together with Mahathir uh, as the leader of a coalition called the Alliance of Hope, Pakatan Harapan, won the government uh, in a federal election, which nobody's kind of, you know, expected that they would win. But they won the election, they ruled the country for about two years, and then within the PKR party, which is Anyo's party, a couple of MPs defected to form another new party called Perikatan National, some sort of like National Alliance Party, which is more or less the same as the old coalition party under Mahathir. Anyway, they ousted Mahathir's government together with UMNO and uh, the Islamic Party parts. Basically, done away with the people's elected coalition government. That was back in late February. And then COVID-19 strike. Yeah, and the country was in a lockdown. A state of emergency was declared, just like many other countries, including Australia and Victoria particularly. And this is a new move with Anwar declaring that he's got the majority of uh, members of parliament to form the new government. Where would you put him on the political sphere? Was he centre, centre-left, centre-right? He's more like um, probably a centre-right with an, a strong Islamic tinge. There is one aspect which many non-Muslim and liberal Muslims are worried about. How far would he push or will he push Wahhabism onto Malaysian political stage? So far, he's kind of tried to portray himself as a liberal Muslim, but he's got a very deep root in the fundamental Islamic Wahhabism from Saudi Arabia. It's hard to kind of put him in terms of that, the the conventional Western political ideological spectrum. This is a different one. Yeah, It's a little bit of a neoconservative, yeah, a bit right-wing, but yeah, and it can be left on some issues, but right in others. Pretty messy. It depends also who backed him. Uh, to form the so-called new government. If the Democratic Action Party, which is the predominantly, you know, slightly more progressive uh, center kind of left party, well, I wouldn't even call them left, they're quite right as well, but they're just a little bit more progressive in certain areas on women's rights and so on and so forth. The Democratic Action Party is um, predominantly Chinese, but there's also Indian and Malays among them. So if he's got backing from uh, the AP and Amana, which is another another Islamic party, but a little bit more liberal kind of Islam, you know, then Anwar's government will be a little bit more progressive. But if his backing comes mostly from within the old 
National Coalition of AMNO, which is the predominantly Malay party, and also the Islamic party PAS, then his politics will be much, much more Islamic. Yeah, and also far-right in a conservative sense. So none of that is clear at this stage. Yeah, so it's quite precarious. You know, nobody can celebrate and nobody can declare who the winner is and so on and so forth. Then the state election in Sabah will be another, what do you call that? Well, it's, it's the one that will determine the future. Like they could side with the conservative racially based party and they can also side with Anwar Ibrahim and, and DAP and all the other parties. So it's all up in the air basically. What sort of a foothold does Wahhabism have in Malaysia now? Mix, I, I say. The ruling party, well, the, the, the Malay dominating party, they really not that Islamic, but they use the Islamic party. The Islamic party is very, very much conservative, uh, kind of right-wing, feudal, a bit feudal, you know, Wahhabist type. Uh, even worse than, I think, some, some of their practices and some of their ideology is actually worse, more conservative than what's being practiced in Saudi, um, which is pretty bad. PKR, which is Anwar Ibrahim's led party, has got a mixed bag of people who are really liberal thinking and people who are slightly, you know, into the kind of neoconservative Wahhabism. But by and large, they're not majority. The multiracial party, by and large. So, you know, a lot depends on who other people are backing, PKR um, and Anwar Ibrahim, to form this new government. Has the present Prime Minister acknowledged that this is a serious threat to him? There's been YouTube videos showing that he's kind of like, know that his days are numbered. Um, you know, hugging his supporter in tears and so on and so forth. I'm not sure how genuine or how recent that vi- that YouTube clip is, but it's gone viral in Malaysia. And we haven't actually gotten any official press statement from him as uh, uh, yeah, to date yet. So, you know, they haven't conceded anything. I'm sure they've been negotiating for MPs to hop this way or the other way with money. Because politics in Malaysia is very, very much driven by money, by and large, you know, by how much you can afford to buy MPs to come over to your party, which is totally undemocratic. But there is as yet any uh, regulation against that, which is really bad. And that kind of politicking happens in countries like Papua New Guinea, but the thing that is happening in Malaysia and has happened there for decades is actually rather worrying. That will be one of the regulations that any new government you know, should look into if they have any credibility or any inclination to stick to a democratic governance system at all. Is Anwar Ibrahim independently wealthy? His wealth has never been... An issue. I don't think he's very wealthy, but he's not poor. He's comfortable. His family's, you know, they're not 
as wealthy as perhaps like Mahathir's children, for example, or Najib, you know, who's stolen billions from the people. And definitely his family hadn't had any track record of um, spending money, you know, big time like Najib's has. And also, yeah, they haven't got any assets that's worth anyone investigating or anything like that. Is there likely to be an early election then? And this is another thing. I've read somewhere that the country, nobody is really keen for an early election or snap election because everyone's not sure where the publics are sitting. So, and, and the king himself apparently is not in favour of any early election. I think that will be the last resort, if anything, especially in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic that makes the, you know, any election much messier and perhaps, uh, I don't know, whether it's more expensive to manage or anyway, it's logistically much more messy to have an election in the middle of a pandemic. Do the authorities have it under control? The pandemic, it's a bit hard to do. Statistically, from what's published officially, Malaysia's done quite well. Yeah, they had some clusters, but it seems to be under control and they're still doing contact tracing, uh, a bit of test, perhaps not as extensively and comprehensively as in Australia. But they've been spared the kind of um, disaster as we are seeing now in India, Brazil and other countries. But whether or not that's hidden, we don't know at this stage. Next to the Linus plant in Kwantan, in August, Mm. Linus got the green light to build a permanent disposal facility for waste treatment on land in Bukit Ketam saying that there was no water catchment area there. That's been disputed. Yes. One of the reviewers that sits on the executive review of the previous government that has reviewed Linus operation, he is an environmental uh, scientist, if you want to put it that way, or water catchment specialist. And he clearly say that that's a water catchment. Basically, in a wet tropical country like Malaysia, you can't find a site that's not affected by water. Um, with its annual monsoon, you know, that stretches for months. And also, you know, generally you get a lot of rainstorm in tropical, uh, in a, in a wet tropical country like Malaysia, where erosion and landslides are very common. It is nowhere safe to build any waste dump containing radioactive materials. I mean, to look at it that way, in Australia, even in desert area or in the USA, in desert area, people object to having any radioactive waste dump being built. And yet, you know, Linus is proposing to build it in a country with very unstable geological condition and hydrological condition where, you know, you can say that much of the Groundwater are connected, regardless of where you put your um, uh, waste dump. You know, either you get affected through landslide erosion, or it contaminates the groundwater if you're in a low land, and that your facility is subjected to flood, like what's happening now with Linus plant. 
it's a waste dump, a temporary so-called waste dump. It's subject to the floods every time there's a heavy tropical rainstorm and also during the monsoon rainy period. And that's why waste has been kind of inundating the surrounding environment and um, there's been evidence of uh, heavy matter contamination. And the only reason we haven't heard of uh, radioactive material contamination is because none of those tests has been done to see if any of the radionuclide of thorium and or uranium is found under the plant in groundwater or in the surrounding area. None of this has been done in Malaysia, which is unacceptable, but it is happening there. And do you believe that they would find those minerals or whatever if they did check? Possibly. I mean, like, when the previous government did a review on Linus, already they were quite serious contamination of the groundwater by toxic heavy metal like nickel, lead, cadmium, uh, and even mercury. But again, they didn't test for radionuclides, so we wouldn't know. But there have been studies done, sponsored by Linus, showing that its radioactive waste can leach radionuclides into groundwater and the surrounding environment, especially during the monsoon period. Yeah, so it's not like it's not going to happen because they they have done study and they knew that the kind of waste medium that Linus generate is slightly acidic and it will leach thorium and uranium into the ground and also in the surrounding area through overflowing and also through leaking, uh, leaky dams. And how does this impact um, on the local people? Well, the thing is, with low-level radioactive materials, it takes decades of accumulation in our body to show issues like health issues like cancer and other chronic diseases associated with um, radi- radioactive, not poisoning, but rather with, yeah, with exposure to radioactive materials. So in other countries like Australia, U.S., there are regulators that manage and monitor this kind of situation. If any, if there's been radioactive contamination of groundwater in the U.S., the plant would be closed immediately. They have much stricter control on radio, radioactive material leakages. In Australia, I guess it's more tolerated because we have such a big mining industry. But even that, you know, EPA would at least take action to stop further leakage. But in Malaysia, none of that is happening. They basically, Linus has been allowed to continue despite data showing contamination. And they have no capability to actually verify contamination. They have not taken any court action against Linus, even though the law allowed the, the environmental authority to sue mainly because of the political backing that Linus has been getting, first from Najib's regime and then later from Mahathir. It would be interesting to see if Anwar Ibrahim did become the prime minister, whether he's actually going to take steps to make sure that Linus is operating according to, you know, more decent safety standards 
instead of what's been happening so far. Because he did pledge to look into Linus issues before, and there are outspoken MPs within his uh, Anyo's party that have um, spoken out very strongly against Linus. What were the um, exact concerns that he had that he might do something about it? Back when he was still the opposition leader, when the Linus campaign was at its um, height in Malaysia, he came to Kuantan and I was at that particular rally and he spoke very strongly to say that a Pakatan Harapan government would definitely look into the Linus issue. But, you know, and, and if he becomes a prime minister, he would definitely, you know, look into the Linus issue. Yeah, and close it down if necessary. So he has made very strong statement against it. And it is probably because of that and the and the turmoil that's happening in Malaysia right now that Linus shares dropped today by about five percent, uh, the last I checked. Yeah, so I think the market knew if he if there's a change in government, Linus is gonna be under the spotlight again. Yeah, and also Linus license condition, the last round of license conditions coming up uh, in January, if it hasn't got a um, permanent storage facility, then, you know, its operation would be stopped. So that's actually quite critical for Linus, whether or not Anwar Ibrahim gets in or whether the, the cool government, backdoor government retain power. Finally, Leitan, the contaminants of the radioactive material you've spoken about, which mightn't show up for many years or decades, but what about all the other contaminants that are leaching into into the soil and into the ground? The heavy metal, yeah, the heavy metal and the chemicals. Yeah, and they're all biologically accumulate, you know, accumulative in uh, organism. Uh, you know, it can be in the food chain, it can be in drinking water. As it is, you know, the contaminants already affecting the local drinking water. Uh, and there's some like 12 families, depending on well water. Again, there's no action taken, you know, to rectify the problems. So, I mean, this kind of radiation hazard takes time to become a major issue. But because of the long uh, half-life of both thorium and uranium, they all they both have half-life in the billions of years, it is permanent. And also any ingestion of radioactive materials will be passed down to future generations. So it's really a slow poisoning by radioactive materials to let this kind of contamination to occur without any check without any uh, remedy or any attempt to try and stop it, if you know what I mean. And and the longer we leave it, the more area will become contaminated and it will be near impossible technically to clean up properly. And it's highly costly. And Malaysia can't afford to do anything about it. That's for sure. As we've said before, Lee Tan, this is the second time in Malaysia, isn't it? Yes, Bukit Mera was a classic example where in the end, you know, a, a waste dump was built at the side of a, a, a hill which people use for their jogging and what have you. 
and I have seen aerial photograph of it. I've been there several times with uh, various different experts, and they all say, well, you know, they doubt that it will last 300 years. This is how long a facility should last to contain the radioactive material. It has to have at least uh, 300 years of uh, lifetime and also very proper record keeping to make sure that future generations would not be using the site, you know, unbeknowingly to expose the hazard to the public. In Malaysia's governance, especially when it comes to environment, it is really a tall ask. And what I've also seen is around there, there are ponds, ex-mining ponds. People are keeping fish aquaculture, you know, they are, they are railing fish in this kind of mining pond. If there's any leakage from the particular waste dump, it doesn't take long, you know, for the contaminants to uh, basically flow into the ponds uh, through rainwater. Yeah, I mean, that, that hill can erode any time, particularly when you have disturbed it by removing the vegetation and then putting a, a concrete structure into it, erosion and landslide, it, it takes, you know, decades, but it can happen. That particular waste dump has only been rebuilt again, uh, I think, in in early 2000, so it's like 10 year old. Before, it was put in a very badly built uh, bunker in the same location, and it was leaking for about 20 years before anything was done to it. So, you know, that kind of ha- things happen in Malaysia. And this is a, but that, that particular plant, Asian rails in, in Bukit Mara, produce only about like 80,000 drums worth of radioactive waste. Although it's much higher in terms of radioactivity, but Linus is producing something like hundreds of times more than the amount that's being produced by Bukit Mera. So we can imagine, you know, it's, the more radioactive waste there are, the more people are at risk of being exposed. And the worst part of it is Linus is trying to still push for its toxic waste to be recycled as soil conditioner. And the current cool government, uh, if it's not toppled, has agreed to review that to allow it to continue to trial with the radio, the toxic radioactive waste to become, you know, agriculture, soy conditioner and enhancer and that sort, whatever names they're giving it. And that's really dangerous. That's essentially spreading the radioactive waste into people's backyard, into, you know, plantations and so on and so forth. Yeah, so there's two areas, you know, one aspect is not disposing its radioactive materials in safe manner, according to international standards. Another one is proposing to actually dump it everywhere as agriculture, soil enhancer, and uh, fertilizer, and so on and so forth. And that's really irresponsible of finest to ever suggest that, and actually carrying out trials of it already in Malaysia. Not a good look, is it? No, no, it's never been a good look from the start, and that's why I kind of kept at it. Thanks, Jan. Thanks to activist Lee Tan. 
For the first time, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association will hold the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture via Zoom. On the 17th of October, former Western Australian MP Melissa Park will present her lecture, The Conscious Pariah, How Distortions of Facts, Contortions of Logic and Assassinations of Character are used against critics of Israel while it poses as the plucky democracy and the eternal victim. For free registration, visit www.afopa.com.au. That's www.afopa.com.au. Australian Friends of Palestine Association is a 3CR supporter. Hello, my name is Adam Elliott and I'm the very overrated director of Harvey Crumpet and Mary Max and you're listening to 3CR. Today part two of my interview with journalist, activist and writer Fred Fuentes. But Venezuela still remains there and it's something that the US wants to get rid of. It wants to send a clear message that it won't tolerate a government in the region that tries to stake out an independent foreign policy, a policy that challenges U.S. interests in the region, and it certainly wants to send a message that it won't tolerate political movements like Chavismo, a political movement that emerged from and that's rooted in the, 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 the poor sections, the, the working class sections of Venezuelan society, being struggling to try and build a, a different society where these sectors, rather than being marginalised, they're at the centre of politics, at the centre of deciding what happens with that, with that country's wealth, what happens with that country's future. So... I think it's a big part of what the sanctions are there for. The sanctions, all the pretenses of the government, of the U.S. government, claiming it's there for human rights and for democracy. You know, the, the history has shown time and time again, always achieve the opposite. And they always affect, by and large, way more affect ordinary citizens than they affect government officials, uh, who always have some way to get around them uh, due to their access to foreign currencies, due to their access to international travel, whatever, whatever it may be, but their positions of power mean that they are less affected than an ordinary Venezuelan person who's being affected by the sanctions today. But, and also never have the intended outcome of uh, increasing democracy. Instead, very often are used as a pretext uh, to attack democracy, uh, where any kind of legitimate opposition is essentially uh, done in the names of protecting the country's sovereignty and having to deal with, with the sanctions and, and foreign intervention. So I think that's a, that's a really important part as well to consider the, the whole US role, what they're doing here, why it has very little to nothing to do with human rights and democracy and everything to do with removing a, a government that's been a thorn in its side for two decades now and sending a message to, to anyone else who, who tries to challenge that. And, and what's more, I hasten to add that uh, with a presidential election coming up in, in November in the United States, uh, certainly some success in that regard would be something that Trump would be uh, trumpeting uh, as, as victory, foreign policy victory uh, for him. Uh, whether he's able to achieve that, though, uh, at the moment seems, seems quite unlikely, although, you know, surprisingly, uh, people speculate as to whether that might mean that Trump ramps up his actions, including, or certainly at least not ruling out some kind of military actions, that perhaps seems not extremely likely, but is not certainly something that that couldn't be couldn't be ruled out. It's had a big influence, but but arguably, like at the uh, like a two, in, in two ways, uh, you know, certainly in the 2000s and maybe after 2012 or so, it had a big influence 
been helping to steer or, or towards a, a sort of dynamic of, of integration regional issues regionally rather than turning to to the US. So, if, you know, for instance, was able during that period to set up bodies like the UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, that had a played a big role in basically resolving what could have potentially been a, a warlike uh, situation when the Colombian government bombed Ecuadorian territory. It also played a role in helping to resolve or to at least bring to a halt a coup attempt in, in Bolivia. All, all of this was done without US involvement, uh, yeah, which was, so in that sense, it's had a big influence. But it is also true that given the very dire economic situation that exists today in Venezuela, it also now has a certain influence that is being utilised to attack anything that is progressive or left. So the, the very common refrain, you know, in the, the rest of the region, you know, it's this, this idea of Venezuelization, you know, that if the left ever gets into power in any of these other countries, what we'll see is a process of Venezuelization, where we will all become like Venezuela, mirrored in economic crisis, political turmoil, a pariah in, on, in, on the international scene. Of course, that's not the case, and there's many reasons to about explain it precisely what has occurred in Venezuela and why Venezuela is in the situation it's in today. But it's no doubt that for much of the right wing, or and even to a certain extent now, centre political forces use Venezuela in that regard as, as a poster for why people should be wary of any kind of progressive change, of, of pushing for radi- particularly radical change uh, in their own countries in the region. Looking at the sanctions, how badly have they affected the country and how many other countries in the world actually abide by those sanctions? Sanctions have had a, a very big impact, there's no doubt about that, on the Venezuelan economy, primarily by stopping the government from being able to access any kind of credits or loans on the international market and ensuring that Pervesa, the state oil company, is unable to really to do the kind of deals it needs to do in order to repair its currently state, which is the state oil company finds itself in a huge internal crisis. It's something that I mentioned before, the, the fact that some of these contracts need to be approved by the National Assembly also contributes uh, to this situation. So what we have is it's not just that the country you know, is unable to access certain markets. It, it's arguable that even if those markets were opened up again, what it would be able to do, given that the from oil and oil production has steeply declined in the last few years. So all this has had a big... There are other countries that also impose sanctions on Venezuela, although most of those sanctions on the European Union countries tend to be more targeted sanctions, at least on paper, they sort of sanctions against individuals in the government as opposed to trade sanctions to Venezuela itself. But that varies country to country. But what I would say is that one also has to keep in consideration that the way that the US sanctions work means that even, well, firstly, when there are, it is able to sanction other companies that work with Venezuela because it basically has a, a ban on any companies trading with the Venezuelan state. And given that almost anything that happens in Venezuela involves a Venezuelan state or de facto via the state, the state oil company, Pervesa, it means that most companies either can't do dealings with Venezuela or uh, even if they could, are particularly scared of doing so, knowing that the, big, the consequences they face in terms of being forced to pay fines, being taken to court by the US, being barred from being able to trade in the US, which of course is a much more important market for most companies around the world than what Venezuela is. So 
It has had a big impact. It's not the only reason, but it's certainly a big impact of the economic situation. The gold that's being held in the UK, first, why is it there and why is it still there? Venezuelan government, like many other governments, has had its foreign reserves stashed in, in, different, in different banks around the world. And that's not a particularly uncommon practice. It's also had deposits of money stationed in other banks around the world, other bank accounts. Uh, so this is quite a common thing. But what, what is extremely uncommon is that what we're seeing is financial institutions such as the Bank of England essentially confiscating, in this case, the, the gold that Venezuela has in that bank. It's claiming that there's a question of legitimacy in terms of who actually has ownership of the gold. Is it Maduro government or is it the interim government or interim presidency of Juan Guaido? And he's using that as a pretext to refuse to return the gold back to Venezuela. Of course, this is also more broadly part of the the sort of economic sort of campaign of sabotage against Venezuela because obviously Venezuela wants that gold and because it wants to be able to sell that on the international market and then use that money to be able to try and see how it can buy some more medicines um, and other basic needs that, that it requires in the country. But it's, it's not the only place where this has occurred. There's been banks in Portugal as well, in Spain, where money has been deposited in order to pay for uh, medicines, supplies, the basic supplies, basic necessities, and where the bank has just basically confiscated that money, said that it's uh, unclear as to who owes that money, and so therefore it's basically stolen that uh, money. We've also seen very similar things done by the US in terms of Venezuelan assets in the US, which uh, they've seized, saying that they're no longer the property of the Venezuelan state, but rather you're handing that property over to Juan Guaido, you know, for Juan Guaido to basically be able to fund his operations, his campaign against the, the Nicolas Maduro government. Is this a precedent or has it happened to other countries as well? Well, certainly sanctions have happened no, uh, the, to the, other countries. The goal. Um, and I'm sure there's, yeah, I'm sure there's, there may have been cases, but I don't think there's been such a coordinated, there's not been a case of such a coordinated campaign of seizure of, of assets. Certainly, for example, I cannot think of a, of a precedent of what the US has done in terms of seizing state property and handing it over to a private citizen under the pretext of defending another country's sovereignty, which is essentially what, what Trump has been arguing. That He's arguing that as Guaido is, according to him, the legitimate president of Venezuela, that therefore he can just take this state-owned property and give it to Juan Guaido to do what he wishes. So we are certainly steps that are being taken that are unprecedented as far as I can, I can recall in, in this regard. The oil. Is any oil getting through or not from other countries? What Venezuela has at the moment is, and which you know, just seems almost crazy to think, but is that it has a, uh, a big problem in terms of shortage petrol. So the ability for a Venezuelan to be able to go to a petrol station and fill up their car has become very difficult. Basically, in about the last six months, this is where this has become a, a real big issue. And again, the, the sanctions have a role to play in this in the sense that the government can't get the kind of stuff that it needs in order to be able to convert the oil it gets out of the ground into petrol for domestic consumption. So what it's had to do is largely now rely on Iran to ship petrol to Venezuela. Now, Iran and Iranian tankers have been willing to, to defy the sanctions, including in some cases that, you know, with very serious threats hanging over them with the US threatening to intercept Iranian tankers on their way to Venezuela. So far, 
that hasn't occurred. It should be said the U.S. has claimed it has intercepted some tankers. The Iranian government has denied that this has occurred. Uh, there's been cases where the tankers have arrived in Venezuela, but later then been had sanctions applied on them by the U.S. So, yeah, as, as with everything, there's always a, a media campaign that goes along with the actual uh, economic campaign against Venezuela. So, uh, but for now, that, that that Iranian oil has uh, Iranian petrol has reached Venezuela. It's been able to help the situation in, in some regards. But it's 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 an unsustainable situation, of course. You know, you really can't just continue continue to send petrol to to help deal with this crisis in Venezuela, particularly when Venezuela itself sits on some pretty large oil reserves and should be able to sustain itself through its own production of petrol, whether that be directly in Venezuela or through the refineries that it owns or used to own around the world. So this this is a, a certainly a big challenge uh, and certainly. Uh, a political, a politically explosive issue because the question of access to petrol has always been a, a conflictive issue in Venezuela, an issue that has previously led to, to mass uprisings when there's been attempts by governments to lift price on on petrol, or, or at least to remove government subsidies on petrol. Venezuela, you know, up until recently, had pretty much the cheapest petrol in the in the world. Uh, the government has had to implement some measures. Into, certainly in terms of rationing current crisis, but uh, were either the price would have to go up or a com- you know, complete shortage, meaning that even through rationing that there was not enough to go around, uh, would certainly be a potentially politically explosive situation uh, in the uh, well, the government is trying desperately to avoid, which is also why the US government is, is talking up, ramping up its sanctions specifically on this issue. Is the oil onshore or offshore? Venezuela's oil is largely offshore. So that's why they can't get back to produce petrol from it? No, the, the biggest problem is, is just the lack of the ability to get the kind of spare parts they need for uh, oil refineries in the country right. uh, that have essentially, uh, you know, for one reason or another, uh, you know, been run down, in some cases been destroyed through internal sabotage. You know, all, all sorts of different factors to prevent that the, the, you know, so they can they can extract the oil, and hence they do continue to sell crude oil uh, on the international market, although at a, at a much lower level than they used to. But a big problem is they, they can't do anything else with it. They can't refine it in any way. They can't get the other materials that they need to mix in with the oil in order to convert them into petrol or, or whatever other combustible fuel that the oil can be converted into. These are all the issues, and this is where the, the tangled web of sanctions makes it almost impossible, really, for, for Venezuela to turn that around, to really fix the situation in its oil company. And so it's largely dependent on having to just sell crude oil, mainly to you know, China, Russia, where it's already got deals, long, long-term deals signed with those countries, and working with Iran for, to help to get Iran to provide it with some petrol as well as some technicians to see what they could do to turn the situation around internally in the oil industry. Are the sanctions also impacting on the ability to control or contain COVID-19? What has happened is that the sanctions have had a, a big impact more generally in the public health system and particularly the hospital system. What this meant was that very early on, as soon as the sort of COVID-19 pandemic you know, became, came to international attention, Venezuela quickly moved to firstly established the dialogue with China to figure out what was going on and to prepare itself for any influx of 19. It knew that should COVID-19 break out on a large scale in Venezuela, 
the country would be in dire, dire problems because its public, its hospital health, public hospital system would just not be able to cope and would very quickly be, be overburdened by large numbers of COVID-19 cases. So what it did was it, it very quickly moved into action, working together with what it still continues to have, which is pretty good, which is the, the local sort of community health system that it's set up involving Venezuelan and Cuban doctors, working together with community health activists, what the government has tried to do is a combination of measures of uh, nationwide lockdowns or quarantining together with you know, doctors and community actors going door to door to check people to see if they've got symptoms, to provide testing, to provide the necessary support, health support uh, for those that are test positive for, for COVID-19. Problem is, is that slowly, slowly, as the situation got worse in the rest of South America, many Venezuelan migrants who had left the country over the last few years because of the economic and political situation found themselves with no protection at all uh, in these other South American countries from COVID-19, as is the case in many countries around the world. The, the, the first to be left without any rights or protections are, are migrants, and many of them have headed back to Venezuela, where at least they have family, a, a home that they can go back to. Uh, we've seen COVID-19 re-enter the country through basically its very poorest borders. The inability of the government to really be able to control its borders, which has been an issue for, for a long time now, has essentially meant that slowly the case numbers have been rising. And now we're starting to possibly get at a critical point in Venezuela. Certainly the numbers continue to rise, the deaths continue to rise not on the scale that we've seen in other South American countries. But as I said, the real fear is that should it come anywhere near the kind of scale that we've seen in other countries, what we'll see is uh, you know, a, a much more devastating situation because of the fact that there is the public hospital system has been so heavily impacted upon by the sanctions and by the, more broadly by, by the economic situation in the country. Finally, Fred, would there be any joy if Biden won the presidency in the US elections? I think there's no indication that there'd be any particular change. Certainly Biden has made no indication that he plans to change the, the current stance the US has towards Eva Maduro or its support for Guaido. And in fact, in, on a number of occasions, Biden has come out and essentially attacked Trump from the right on Venezuela, saying that you know, he's failed to protect human rights and democracy and that if, you know, if, if Biden was to win the elections, that he would be much more you know, active in seeking to remove the Maduro government. So I think there wouldn't be much of a respite. What there might be might be a change of policy. And of course, that also has to do not just with what happens in the US presidential elections, but what happens with the National Assembly elections in Venezuela. You know, should the opposition start to change tack, then perhaps Biden might see it in his interest of, you know, to, to end the policy essentially of of flogging a dead horse and pretending that Guaido is somehow any kind of interim president and instead seek to work with uh, Enrique Capriles and his section of opposition that is, as I said, saying that it was willing to participate in elections but doing so from, from a very, very critical viewpoint whilst it seeks to shift the terrain to make it more favourable uh, for the opposition. And in this regard, the, the call for European Union observers, the freeing of the... Um, the which the the Venezuelan government has agreed to, the freeing of, of the 110 opposition figures from prison. All these are you know, signs that the government is showing that it is willing to, to seek a, 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 a way out. So that, that may lead to a tactical change in, in Biden's potential Biden administration and its, its views towards you know, Venezuela. But I think it would still share the same 
basic goal, which is to, to get rid of the, the Maduro government. We shall see. OK, thanks, Fred. Journalist, activist and writer, Fred Fuentes. You've heard about the annexation of Palestinian land, but now join Free Palestine Melbourne and West Bank tour guide Yehab Rafi for a virtual tour of the West Bank. From Jerusalem to Jericho and up the Jordan Valley, see what annexation means to the social and economic life of affected Palestinians and hear directly from local farmers and villagers about what it means for them. The tour will be followed by a Q&A session. The facts on the ground. Annexation from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley virtual tour. Wednesday the 7th of October at 7.30pm. Register at the events page of fpmelbourne.org. That's fpmelbourne.org. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. On the 4th of October, New Caledonians will vote in a referendum on their political future. An online webinar hosted by the Griffith Asia Institute was held on the 17th of September. There were three speakers, with journalist Nick McCollum as the facilitator. Today we hear from Nick and two of the speakers, one Patricia Goa, an elected member of the New Caledonia Congress, and Magalie Tingle, a New Caledonian journalist. To set the scene, I might just give a quick introduction for people who aren't as aware about current developments in New Caledonia in recent times. After violent conflicts in the 1980s, a series of agreements were forged between the French state, opponents of independence, and members of the Kanak Independence Coalition, the FLNKS, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front. The Namira Agreement of 1988 was an innovative framework to establish a decolonisation process for New Caledonia, allowing long-term residents of the French Pacific Dependency to determine their future political status after a long transition. The Namira Accord created new political institutions, including three provincial assemblies in the North, South and Loyalty Islands, It established a national congress with representatives from those three provinces, a multi-party collegial government uh, that includes both supporters and opponents of independence, and a Kanak customary senate. Over the 20 years since the signing of that agreement in 1998, there's been a progressive transfer of legal and administrative powers over many sectors of economy and society from Paris to Numea. And the French government has supported a range of measures for economic, social and cultural rebalancing, the term used in the uh, the Accord. That's seen major changes, including the development of key industries, such as the, the construction of new smelters for nickel. Export of nickel ore and nickel metals a major economic uh, resource for this French Pacific state. After 20 years, the original Namir Accord agreed that there would be provision for a series of referendums on self-determination to determine the possible transfer of the remaining powers of sovereignty over defence, foreign policy, currency and more. Uniquely, the Namir Accord doesn't just have one referendum to determine future political status. 
it allows for up to three referenda, not just one. And that's uncommon when you look internationally. The first referendum under the accord was held in November 2018, nearly two years ago. 43% of those who participated voted yes to independence, nearly 57% voting no to remain with the French Republic. That's a clear vote for the status quo. But many pundits, polling, politicians had predicted a much weaker result for the independence movement. And I think it's fair to say many were shocked at the strength of support from uh, particularly the Kanak people, but other supporters of independence. That's moved on two years to a second referendum, which will be held on the 4th of October this year. Two years on, however, the referendum comes at a changed context, obviously with the global coronavirus pandemic creating major economic and social changes in New Caledonia. And today we want to speak to our panellists and ask them, not just about the referendum, but about the current state of play. It's rare to hear voices directly from uh, New Caledonia in the broader Pacific, so we thank them for their participation. First, I might start just by asking our three panellists um, to really comment on the, uh, the current situation and what do they see as the main challenges facing New Caledonia on its path to decolonisation. If I could begin by speaking to you, Patricia, Patricia Goa, and asking uh, for your comments. Before I uh, start, I'd like to... I'll do it in French. Je ne sais pas pourquoi je suis ému. Hein. Je, je, je voulais vous remercier. Et je voulais... Ça fait 30 ans que j'ai pas eu l'occasion d'avoir mes amis australiens. On va dire ça comme ça. Ou mes amis du Pacifique. Donc avant que j'essaye de, de reprendre un anglais que j'ai oublié depuis 20 ans, je voudrais vous dire bonjour. Bonjour à okay. tous ceux qui nous regardent. So to my friends uh, in Australia who I haven't seen for 30 years, to people across the Pacific, before I speak in English, I want to salute you and thank you uh, for the welcome. Merci. Et aussi euh, faire en sorte que les élus, les différentes personnalités qui nous suivent aujourd'hui reçoivent le bonjour de Kanaki Nouvelle-Calédonie. Donc c'est important pour moi de le dire. If I have to say in a few points, but you'll excuse me, because it's been nearly 20 years since I haven't been able to speak in English. But the main focus for us and the main challenges, especially for for the independentist groups, whether they're in the Congress or in any provincial assemblies, we really have to succeed. And I'm looking at the French state in saying he has to succeed in decolonization. That's the first challenge. The particularity of Kanaki struggle is that he was able to put it accord, and especially the Numea accord, three elections, where you are going to ask its population whether you want to accede to, whether you want to come to sovereignty, whether you want to be independent. Three times. It's been done in 2018. It's going to be done in 2020. 
And if we don't succeed in 2020, we are going towards 2022. The main thing I want to see is that once Jean-Marie Chibao said, whether we are going to a path where even at the end of the path, if there's only one Caledonian, one Kanak living on this land, we will still struggling for our sovereignty. And that is really important. And that is what I want to say. Thank you very much, Patricia. Magali, I pose the same question to you about the challenges facing uh, New Caledonia, uh, your vision of uh, the, the key steps before you. Thank you, Nick. So on my turn, I'll uh, acknowledge uh, all the participants and also the honourable members of Parliament who have joined this uh, webinar. Thanks uh, to Griffith University as well to make it happen and to you, Nick, for this very important uh, seminar for the region. Um, so as um, Patricia said, of course, that for us, the, the, the main challenge is to succeed this decolonization, but no mistakes. It's the responsibility of France to achieve this decolonization. But for us, as um, Kanak people, we need to uh, again, again, again educate, educate our people to understand what is really uh, important when we talk about our um, decolonization. We may say, well, is decolonization means independence for us in the FLNKS? Yes, we, we are on the path of decolonization to go to, to our independence. So may, maybe one of our challenges has, uh, so I, John, Pat, Patricia, were on the success of the decolonization. And for France, to achieve this decolonization in our country here is their best challenge. They're going to make history if they'll achieve this uh, decolonization in, this, in the Pacific here uh, with us. So first, when our elders put uh, our people on the first path of the decolonization, they have decided to sign two accords, Numea Accord and Martino-Uzino Accords. This is our way to go to the decolonization. We're talking also on the decolonization of mentalities to try to think after the independence. We're talking also, it's a quite a big challenge for us to talk about independence has, has um, a, an opportunity. Why? Because since then, independence is scary here for people. So we have to talk to people, we have to educate, as I said, through meetings, discussion, and uh, we're talking about living together. So yes, our best challenges is to succeed, to achieve this decolonization. Thank you, Nick. Yes, Patricia. I really have to emphasize one thing. When we did the vote in 2018, that was the chance for us to enter the numbers, just to know who is voting, just to know who is today capable of talking about sovereignty. And that was really important, that today we understand that we're not 
talking only for the Kanak people. The importance that we have to emphasize today is that even if we are a majority of yes, as we may say, it's really a status or a project for all Caledonians living in Kanaki. It's not just for us that today we are fighting or we are struggling. Let's not oppose all the people living on this land. Today we know that people are not afraid anymore of claiming where they are from. And that is really, to my sense, something important. We are talking about 20 years of stability or 30 years of stability. We are being able to do our own law. We have been able to redefine some of our projects. And that is really important. We are talking about education. We are talking about health. We are talking about our youth and our women. And that is very important to understand. We are not just talking about a people. We are talking about a nation to be. As a reporter, I was in New Caledonia covering the 2018 referendum and noticed that one of the main concerns from people who were either opposed to independence or wavering about their vote was concern about what it would mean economically. People concerned that the loss of French funding would um, affect their livelihoods, their well-being. Magali, as you're campaigning today, how do you respond to the challenge that comes from uh, uh, opponents of independence that this move to sovereignty would be a significant economic setback? and impact people's livelihoods and well-being. Exactly. In 2018, when we started um, the campaign, the year's campaign, we didn't know that we, we had to talk about economics uh, founding from France. It's actually when we start to talk to people, talk about the French founding, that we had to again educate. From 2018 to now, we have to always, always, always answer that part of the um, independence. But it's not only talking about founding, but what we we saying to people when they ask this. Uh, first of all, France is only 10% in our founding today. We're talking about 10%. It's not all our money. And if that country is that developed, it's not only because of France. It's also because there's independence, uh, there's a Numea Accord. France do what they must do through this political accord. After the independence, can we survive without French money? We'll talk with, uh, with France after the independence. This is going to be our first cooperation. It's, it's going to be our first friend nation as far as uh, our friend, brothers and sisters from the Pacific region, but also France. And France is paying here for his presence. We're talking about army, we're talking about French embassy, French haut commissariat. This is what we talk, we're talking about when we're talking about French money. Eh? Patricia, you live in the northern province. One of the major changes that's come over the last 20 years under the Namir Accord has been some significant changes in the mining industry and particularly the uh, construction of new smelters. 
Um, historically, there's been a, a smelter from Societe Le Nickel in Numea, um, which is uh, transforming New Caledonia's vast reserves of nickel into metal for export. There's been now a, a new plant in the south at Goro, controlled currently by the Vale Corporation from Brazil. And in the north, a major project at Coniambo, a major smelter with the northern province. It's a time of major change internationally. Can you tell us a little bit about both the importance of these changes in the mining and uh, smelting sector, but particularly what it's meant for people living in the north where you live outside the provincial capital? Before I, I go any further, Nick, I'd like to come back to what Magali said, and that's very, very okay. important. She said one of the difficulties we have here is that apart from saying you will not be able to work without French money, you will not be able to study without French money, you will not be able to heal yourself without French money. Something happened in the world a few months ago, a crisis, a major crisis, a pandemia, the coronavirus. That question is addressed to the whole world. We can't keep on doing what we've been doing so far. It's just impossible. We have to change the way we look at economy. We have to change the way we look at how to heal ourselves. We have to change the way we eat every day. One of the main challenges that we have to go through. But it's not only a challenge for myself, because I'm seeing really myself as someone from the Pacific. It's really how I see the world from now on and tomorrow. And that it's very important because we are capable of, and some way along the path, we forgot ourselves. And it's really important that humanity comes back to the center. And that's what he's saying in what we are looking at. You're talking about nickels. New Caledonia holds one quarter of the world nickel resources. One quarter. Nickel sec sector is the first employer of in New Caledonia, before the public function. Nickel resources are not renewable. So we really have to think of how we work for future generations. And that's what Kamak is saying. That's what our cultural heritage is saying. But not only to us in Kanaki, in the Pacific. Kanaki Nouvelle Caledonie must ensure return on investment and ensure value-added profit for our country. That's how we have to think. The Northern Plant Kindness, because you've been talking about it, is a major pleasure in the economic rebalancing of our country. Nick, as you know, I work a lot on custom land. It's really another issue for myself and for the whole Kanaki Nouvelle Caledonie. It's an important issue because of what? Because today we hear that uh, you are not capable of making enterprise, of making value on your land. You are not capable. Look, everyone is going and sitting in the capital. It's true. But if we didn't imagine what could 
retenir the people in the northern province. We will be more today in the capital city. And it's really important to understand that. We really have to think, rethink our model wherever we are, and especially on our custom land. And something that is struggling really today is what do you want for tomorrow? We are at the end of the path. Everything that you have imagined, everything that we are coming through, we are at the end of the path. We have to change our thinking in everything we are doing today. But it's not just only us. The whole world has to remodel the way we want to be for the future generation. We have a number of questions, and I might start um, posing a question that's come in uh, from uh, one uh, member of the audience. With just over two weeks until the independence referendum, what's the general feeling in New Caledonia about the vote and whether events such as COVID-19 or the current dispute over the Goro Nickel Project have influenced people? Um, Magali, you've been uh, actively campaigning uh, as part of the Yes campaign for independence. What's your sense of how people are reacting on the ground, given uh, the situation in 2020 with the pandemic is a different environment than two years ago? The environment is different. Is different. If, we're gonna, if we're gonna have a third one, the environment is going to be different again. Two years, it's quite uh, long, but it's quite uh, fast as well. And uh, for us, what happened for this uh, second referendum is like, uh, we had two elections. Uh, between the uh, first referendum and this one. We have a provincial referendum, um, election, sorry. And so we change our Congress, we change our government, and we also have municipal uh, uh, elections, we change um, uh, our mayors. So for this referendum, we also change the elected members of the Congress of New Caledonia. We now have uh, a new strategy coming from the um, non-campaign. We can feel on the ground when we're campaigning uh, that um, people want more information, more and more and more. You know, we're talking about independence in 2020. We're facing um, young intellectual Kanak. Talking about independence in this millennium, it's quite uh, a big challenge. Uh, people want more and more information. Uh, we're campaigning for the independence. We're now having social media. Back in 10 years, we, were, we didn't have that kind of campaigning. Um, so we can feel that people want more and more information. And um, they're listening. They're going their own studies when they have one questions. So we can't campaigning in, two, uh, in 2020 like we did to campaign 10 years ago. Eh? We're talking about for this campaign, we're talking about what's what going to, uh, to happen after the yes, I mean the Monday in the morning. Uh, give information on there's an, another process after the yes to pull out from the French constitution. It's that kind of thing that we, we, we're just talking about this now, like 10 or 20 years ago when we were talking about independence, it was like, oh, no longer talking about independence. Now it's like we can't feel it. You're listening to an edited 
webinar on the upcoming New Caledonian elections with Nick McClellan and Magalie Tingler and Patricia Goa. A question has come in uh, from Jean-Gabriel Mongui asking about an article in the newspaper Le Monde that's just been published. You've mentioned that there's a new generation of people, you know, buying into the discussion. People who are 18 years old going to vote for the first time weren't born when the Namir Accord was signed, let alone when the troubles of the 1980s occurred. Jean-Gabriel asks that a group of local intellectuals, including Emmanuel Chibau, the son of the late Jean-Marie Chibau, has written in Le Monde, we are slowly evolving into a Creole community. We have to move away from ideologies and the decolonization discourse. I wonder whether any of you would be willing to, to comment on that uh, intervention in the referendum debate by some leading figures uh, about uh, whether, you know, the call for decolonization, the call for independence is, is out of place. If I put all the questions you were talking about so far, can I put it differently and, and I'll address uh, a response to Jean-Gabriel Mongi. The question is how is 2020 or 2020 different from 2018? Everything is different. In two years' time, everything is different. Because people are growing, because people are changing, but also because the context in whom we are asked to is different. We didn't agree on the date. We didn't agree on the fact of they today, and that's a position from the state, are able to use the national French flag. What is different? Today, we have numbers. As you guys know, the system of voting in New Caledonia is not compulsory. So now we know that over 33,000 of people didn't bother vote. We have to understand why they didn't want to vote. Who are they? When I say that, it's because we have seen or we understand in our precision in wanting to know how we were voting in 2018, not only the youth is not voting. And I want to say that today, they are voting. They know why they are voting, most of them. But why at that time, let me rephrase this. We are coming out 30 years ago of a situation which was qualified as a civil war in Kanaki 30 years ago. Of course, we cannot say you are you that came through history in Kanaki. You're not the responsible for it because you are today 18. But we cannot deny that that happened. Today, we cannot deny that it's been 30 years where people have struggled. People died for this fight. We cannot ignore that. I'm not talking about creality. I'm talking about Kanaki identity, Caledonian identity. We cannot deny that people went through a lot of harassment. 
a lot of struggle. And that is very important. Of course, we have to redefine. Of course, today, we have intellectuals. We don't need to be intellectuals to know what we, we want for our country. We don't need to transform everything in concept to exist, because that would be an error. One cannot deny his history. His history is the path for the future. It doesn't mean that you are responsible for what the elders have done. Everything is not to be thrown in the rubbish. We have to learn from our mistakes. Nick, I'm talking to you. That's been posed from um, Alfred, yeah. I think Alfred Suakai, in the Forum yeah. Secretariat. And it ties yeah. into this question. As we mentioned at the beginning, this has been a long process. You mentioned 30 years since yes. the conflict of the 1980s. There have been unique elements in the yeah. Namir Accord process. The delay till holding a, a decision on political status, the fact that there are three referenda, some unique attempts to bring customary authorities into an advisory role in the parliament and so on. And I wonder, at the same time, there have been uh, tensions between supporters and opponents of independence, um, a whole range of factors that have worked and haven't worked. The question asked from Alfred Suakai, what are the strengths and weaknesses of New Caledonia's unique self-determination process? Um, what can the world learn from the experience thus far? Didn't we answer to that question so far? Are there other yeah. elements that you think have been uh, been ignored? Maybe I could throw one in. Yeah. New Caledonia, drawing on French law, has a, a system uh, called the loi de parité, um, where the electoral system ensures that women have representation equal to men in the parliamentary institutions. Um, a number of political parties are led by women in New Caledonia or have been over the last 20 years. And indeed, the first elected uh, leader of a Pacific Island country uh, was Marie Noel Temero in 2004. Her vice president was also a woman. Given that many neighbouring Melanesian countries have very poor representation by women in their national legislatures, I wonder if you could comment about uh, the strengths and weaknesses of that, uh, uh, what was a French law, bringing... Uh, women into the electoral system. There's sometimes tension between uh, these laws and uh, connect custom. You can feel in this country that uh, there's a woman within the parliament. You can feel it every day. Since uh, the law of the uh, Loi de la Parité from France came in, uh, elected members of the northern province, you can feel in each laws now that there's women. But as easy it can shows. Like for us as a Kanak woman, we must be the voice of the people, not only the women, also the young and also I mean we, we are uh, elected as men. But uh, it has to come to uh, for a short time, eh? for for time. It's not easy like we it can be or it shows. Talking in front of the public, being on the front, uh, it's quite uh, sometimes uh, still, sometimes uh, difficult, but I know that we are the only one country from, from the Melanesia that we, there's a woman in, elected woman in the, uh, our Congress. 
So I can encourage, please, our brothers from the Pacific to bring more women in their parliament. They will really, really gain for, for it because when there's, a, there's women in the room, you can tell that the, there's something different. We are 250,070 in Kanaki Novel It's not a question of even if I'm the first to say it's really important that women are there where they have to be. But for me, the struggle of the Kanak people is not a question of age, of sex. It's really the struggle of a country, of a people. Why am I saying that? Magali is right. We have the possibility today to be where we are in political assembly. But it doesn't mean that we have to stop in wanting what we want for our rights as women. It doesn't mean that everything is okay. And it's like, as I said before, Nick, you know that I work a lot on custom land. Today, when we talk with the custom elders, they don't see us as women, but they really see us as resource, strength, That is what is really important here. I don't really like the debate on opposing men and women. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And we are here to face that. Let's not be paternalistic about it. If I do have to do that where I am, I do it. Because it's very difficult, though I am represented in the Congress of New Caledonia, when I'm looking at what happened this morning, for example, it's very difficult for a woman or a Kanak woman, but because she's capable of thinking by herself. And that's very important for me because, once again, we are only 250,000. And what I really want to say is that we are few and many at the same time. But what is really important, le corps électoral spécial qui a été mis en place, et Nick tu le traduiras, est quelque chose de formidable. Le corps électoral spécial qui a été mis exclusivement pour le référendum dans la mesure où on savait pertinemment que la France, en tant qu'État colonial depuis des siècles, a fait en sorte que l'on soit minoritaire chez nous. Et ça, Pour la classe politique dans le Pacifique et dans le monde, je pense que c'est une leçon à avoir. So Patricia is saying that the one of the the key features of the current situation is the restricted electoral role for the local institutions and particularly the referendum, um, because the French state over time has made the Indigenous Kanak people a minority in the country. And that is uh, a central part of the, the, the context. Sorry, I've just uh, given a brief summary. Related to this question about the weight, the size of New Caledonia, is the, the geopolitics of the region. And we have a question coming to that. During his visit to New Caledonia and uh, Australia in 2018, French President Emmanuel Macron raised concern about China's growing influence in the Pacific region and what it might mean for an independent New Caledonia. 
China at the moment is New Caledonia's largest trading partner, particularly through the sale of nickel, uh, nickel ore to uh, uh, smelters uh, in China through the northern province. So the question has come from uh, one of the audience. In 2020, what is the general feeling towards China in New Caledonia and how would panelists like to see an independent New Caledonia interact with larger world powers in terms of foreign policy? How will New Caledonia and independent New Caledonia relate to China, to France, to Australia, closest neighbour, to other major powers? Like just only had one thing. It's concerning our new relationships with China or other countries. Instead, that independence is um, for us to open our doors on the uh, international level. Independence doesn't mean for us, for the FLNKs, to close our doors and being like uh, only independence for us, it's to lead us on the international um, level, yes. Let's not be mistaken here. I'm not against France. I speak French since I'm six years old, though I do speak my own language. I breathe French. That's the colonization. I didn't choose, but it's a fact. I know the French history maybe more than the French themselves sometimes. My choice tomorrow is a normal way of doing What we are saying is that we come to an extent where this people is asking for sovereignty, plenty sovereignty. What's wrong with having cooperation with China and others? What we are saying is just that the fact that the difference is that we will choose how we want to put and the level we we want to put in that relationship. We choose as a free state, as a state. That is all the difference. Why can't I make mistakes? I have to make mistakes to go further. What Magali is saying is that we have been doing it already through our project, but it's the capacity or the possibility of choosing what I want and putting in the middle the interest of New Caledonia and all the people that are living on this land. And that's what is aiming us. In 2018, you, the Yes campaign, the campaign for independence, received 43% support for New Caledonians wanting to be independent. The question is, will you do better this time? Of course. <laughs> It's a challenge. It's a time of COVID. It's a time of economic uncertainty. It's a time where the loyalists, the opponents of independence, have formed a coalition uniting six parties. Are you sure that you'll do better? (laughs) Of course, Nick. As Patricia said in the the beginning, we have three polls, eh? three times to express for or against uh, the independence. Uh, This is what the Numea Accords put on the table to make it uh, uh, happen. The second one, this one, it's maybe the the more strategic one. Why? Because we know that 
the first referendum, we made it for 43%. Uh, we must go ahead for this one. But we also know that there's another one. So it means that li like for this second more like for, to educate again. We're campaigning to win this time. We'll do it better. Um, I believe that um, Patricia already answered that uh, regarding that we're going to the more for to the people who didn't vote for the first referendum, who they are and why they didn't vote. So we're campaigning like we call door to door. We're just going to the families, talking to the elders, talking to the kids, the women of the house. So we're campaigning a little bit differently. So means that we, we're going to have a better result, but we'll win this time. You've been listening to journalist Nick McClellan and two activists from New Caledonia, Patricia Goa and Magali Tingle, about the upcoming New Caledonia referendum. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. It's an independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. Finally, for this Tuesday home time, Jacob Gregg, journalist and activist. Jacob, we're keeping a score which I must emphasise in no way trivialises the situation of Julian Assange at the Old Bailey in London. Last week it was 1 out of 10. Week 2 it was 1.2 out of 10. What's your judgement for this week? The scorecard for the British justice system is 1 out of 10, or if I can, I give a 0.5 out of 10. You can. Yeah, 0.5 out of 10. But this week was actually was actually quite a strange one because a lot of the testimony on behalf of the defence actually spoke to a lot of what was going on. You know, we had, um, for example, you know, Nikki Hager from New Zealand giving evidence of how the information compiled in the Iraq and Afghan war logs was, was crucial to public knowledge. And he spoke about working with Julian and about Julian about how he was concerned about redacting all the names. We then had Jen Robinson testifying about how while she was visiting Julian in the embassy one day, he was visited by Dana Rohrabacher, who told him that Trump would offer him a pardon if he gave him certain information, basically about the source of some of the leaks. Julian abided by... WikiLeaks um, policy of not divulging their sources. We then had Khaled El-Masri, who was a German national, who was, and um, this is last, just a week before last, the last day of the first week, who was arrested by the CIA and redemptioned to a CIA black site. They tried to stop him speaking, and that's when Julian actually spoke up from the dock and he said, I'll not censor a torture victim statement. I'll not accept that. So he gave evidence basically talking about talking about what it's like to be tortured by the US government. We then had um, Kerry Shankman, who's an expert in the Espionage Act. We had 
Dean Yeats, who was the Reuters um, head reporter in, or chief of staff, I've got to say, in the Baghdad office at the time of the collateral murder, they all gave coherent information about why what the work of WikiLeaks was in the public interest. And then we moved into this week and we get things like, you know, the, the prosecution, a lot of their case hinges on two main facts. And that is, first of all, that Julian conspired with Private Manning to hack into the computer system and that the information released endangered American informants and people and other people working. So a lot of the defence are countering those facts. And so we had a German computer science, I think you call him Professor Christian Goroff, who testified about the timeline of how what the US alleged couldn't have happened, that the cables weren't first published by WikiLeaks or Assange. They were first published by The Guardian, who put out a book, David Lee put out a book that mentioned the password, and the passwords weren't even to the to the leaks on the WikiLeaks site. They were on the leaks of a mirror site set up by a bloke, um, Domshit Berg, who had a falling out with WikiLeaks and set up his own his own leak site, so it put paid to that. We had um, testimony from a Trump insider, a woman by the name of Cassandra Fairbanks, um, who spoke about how she was talking to... She was also a supporter of Assange. She was talking to a major Republican donor who told her that he knew, who actually let slip the information to her that Julian was going to be taken out of the embassy and also that he was going to be charged with supporting Chelsea Manning. She also talks about how the U.S. ambassador to Germany organised on behalf of the American government the deal whereby Ecuador rebuked his refugee status and um, led the way for the British government to move in. That was done by the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Now, why Germany? We don't know, except you know, we can't work out why the U.S. does things or why anyone does anything for that matter. But we do know, again, through information that WikiLeaks has published, that Germany is uh, Frankfurt is the headquarter of the NSA in Europe that they use to meddle in international affairs. We know, for example, through Vault 7 of WikiLeaks that that's where the NSA targeted a whole lot of European leaders and it's also where they ran the campaign to help get Macron elected under Barack Obama's direct instruction. You know, we then move in through the middle of the week discussion turned in part to medical testimony, talking about Julian's state of health, the fact that he's Asperger's, how he would react to being in solitary confinement under the um, special administrative measures in the USA. Now, every time there's expert testimony, the prosecution, Lewis in particular, has a ploy of trying to belittle the person giving witness, uh, giving testimony. We had Dr. Dealey, an expert in, um, in autism, testifying about his diagnosis of Julian Assange. And basically, the prosecutor is questioning this medical specialist's diagnosis, which was absolutely, absolutely crazy. 
We then had a prosecution witness, Sina Fazal, and she was basically testifying that he, he didn't have autism. Now, how that happens, I don't know. But anyway, we then stayed with the medical things. I don't talk about the medical things too much because, you know, it's, um, it's very sensitive. You know, he is very depressed, and you can imagine what it would be like to be um, to be threatened with 175 years in a U.S. special administrative <laughs> measures prison. I think I'd be well and truly contemplating suicide. Well, to be honest, I probably would have done it already in that position. But anyway, then we move into a whole lot of things about how Julian went to great lengths to cover the names of informants within all the, the leaked documents. After he found out, it talks about how after he found out that the password had been leaked, the first thing he did was got in contact with the state, U.S. State Department to say, shit, this has happened, it wasn't me, what can we do here to mitigate any damage? We had computer experts talking about how he could not have helped Private Manning do what it's being accused of. It was just like every witness, any right-minded person hearing the testimony, even if they believed half of what the defence witnesses were saying, have to conclude that the charges are trumped up. But then the final thing, the real, I think it's the nail in the coffin of the prosecution, is on the final day, Magistrate Barista, who's been saying that she wanted everything to be wrapped up as soon as possible and we thought there'd be, she was going to, she said previously that she wasn't going to allocate any extra time for um, summing up for conclusion statements, came out with the bombshell on Friday that she was going to allocate four weeks to get concluding remarks together and then she needed to have a break because she didn't want the US election to impact on the trial or the trial to impact on the US election. So the whole part of Julian's whole defence is that this is a political trial, it's a trial of a political nature, and political trials don't fall under the gamut of the extradition treaty. And the whole time, the US, the US government and the British Crown Prosecutor has been saying there is nothing political about this trial at all. But then when we see that the trial has actually been timetabled in order to avert impacts on the election, you can't do that and at the same time say it's not political. So the feeling is that by that, she's basically shot the whole thing in the foot. Anyway, that's my sum up for the, of the week and a bit that's just gone by, Jen. How did Julian's defence team deal with this announcement? Um, I haven't spoken to his defence team, but Kristen, um, the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, put out a statement pointing out just that, that Magistrate Barista has admitted that it's a political charge, and that, no doubt, will be a, a major, what's the word, a major part of their con concluding summary. We've talked about the dearth of media covering this hearing and we have Craig Murray who's doing a lot of the work for social media. He wrote that he's been shadow banned from Twitter and Facebook. Can you explain what that means? Yes. Facebook works on various algorithms, right? For example, you know, a lot of people have so-called friends on Facebook that they've never met. No one's got really have thousands of friends, right? But when you follow somebody and when you 
regularly go to their pages, it's assumed that Facebook, and that Facebooks are stated, that that's what determines what shows up in your newsfeed. However, I go to Craig Murray's page all the time. Every day I go to Craig Murray's page and it never shows up in my newsfeed. I follow Craig Murray on Facebook and it never shows up in my newsfeed. I follow James Rickardson, Sydney filmmaker, who's doing a, a daily report on it with interviews with Kristen and, and John Shipton every day. And even though I follow them, even though I search for them every day, even though I share most of their themes, for some reason they still do not show up in my newsfeed. And other people are telling me that I don't show up in their newsfeed. But I do get a newsfeed of, you know, somebody that I maybe spoke to once and friended three years ago. And so there is a way that Facebook is stopping information from people who have been talking about Assange from getting through to people's newsfeeds. There's no other way to explain it. Was this in some way expected? Of course. It's got to the point now where we expect every sinister, dastardly manoeuvre possible. Nothing is surprising. In fact, sometimes, strangely enough, I think, oh, geez, what if they do that? And I kick myself for thinking about it because I've created the idea and put it into the ether somehow. Anything they can do, they will do. These are people who have orchestrated a change of government in Ecuador, who have created false sexual assault allegations. These are people who have made a whole mockery of the British justice system. These are people who have lied through their teeth for 10 years about there not being an indictment out to get Julian Assange. These are the people who are doing all this because they want to prosecute and persecute a person and other people because, you know, and Julian is a warning to everybody else and an organisation. They want to persecute people who expose the fact that they have killed millions of people, created millions of refugees and spent trillions of dollars on wars based on lies. And they've done that so that they can continue the flow of resources from the world's people into the most powerful companies on the planet. And this is what we're seeing right up to this day. It's like when Kristen Herpinson came into 3CR and, and, and I interviewed him there. My first question to him was, you were involved in the release of the collateral murder video, Kristen. He said, yes, I was. I said, well, what the f*** did you think they were going to do to you? You know who you're dealing with. And Julian knew who he was dealing with and what he was doing and he expected them to come after him. I don't think any of us expected the lengths they were going to go to. But this is why they're doing it. So, sorry, I've probably gone away from the question there. But, um, yes, we expect every dastardly deed they can come up with in their darkest, demented dreams. Can I just take you back to what you said about the change of government in Ecuador? What evidence is there of US involvement in that? Well, they gave them a $4.2 billion loan that happened at the same time the government was changed. The first act of the new government was allowing the United States to have a base in Ecuador where the previous government had a, a firm no bases, no foreign bases policy. We see the United States 
putting a whole heap of money into Ecuadorian grassroots movement against Chinese fishing around the Galapagos Islands. There is no proof that the United States government or someone acting on its behalf went to Lennon Marino and said, we'll give you this if you do that. But when you see one thing happen, and then immediately all Carrera's reforms get wound back, and Marino goes all the way with the USA, well, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to put two and two together. We've spoken about Craig Murray a few times now. Who is he? Craig Murray is a former British diplomat. Um, I'm not sure where he was a diplomat to, actually, somewhere in Europe. I'm just having a look. Uzbekistan uh, in the early 2000s. And he's also an author, an author, sorry, political activist, human rights campaigner. He's basically someone, let's put it, let's be honest, towards the end of his career, who doesn't feel the need to kowtow to anybody. So he's taken it upon himself to, um, he went to, he wrote a couple of books about corruption in um, Uzbekistan. And he got reprimanded and um, removed from his post and and all that kind of stuff. And about, you know, the involvement of the US and the British Foreign Office. And he's now just an, an activist in Scotland. He's taken it upon himself to provide a running commentary on the Assange case from inside the courtroom. Wondering, Jacob, if there's been any comments from Edward Snowden on this hearing. Yes, there has. Um, not used in the hearing that I'm aware of, although there's a chance I might have missed something. Um, but Snowden was talking on a couple of occasions, some US YouTube channel, where he spoke about, repeatedly spoke about the sham trial um, going on at the moment in London for the extradition of Julian Assange. He's written letters and made numerous statements in support of Julian. Finally, Dame Vivian Westwood, who's she? Yes. Vivian Westwood is a a fashion designer, of all things. She's one of the people who, early on in um, Julian's incarceration, both under house arrest and um, and later in the Ecuadorian embassy, has been one of the public figures who has come out in support of Julian. She was basically the the fashionista behind punk fashion in the in the 70s. You know, I think she dressed the sex pistols and, and things like that. But, you know, she's just a, um, a celebrity coming out in support of Julian. Vivian being a, um, what's the word, an icon of the punk music, of the, of the punk fashion and music scene, has never really left that, let's call it, punk aesthetic and so what she did last week was sat in a cage in support of Julian Assange to highlight um, the injustices being done to him. And I've got to say, not only him, but um, other whistleblowers as well. The cage she sat in looked like a canary cage and she was dressed in, in bright yellow. And, you know, this, you know sitting, sitting on a swing inside it. And, you know, this woman's 79 years old now. I, I guess she's got a bit of, you know, the queen mother of punk vibe about her. You know, she referred to herself as the canary in the coal mine. 
being the signal, Julian being the signal of what would happen to um, to whistleblowers. So you have her and a whole lot of other celebrities, I guess, people like Roger Waters, Patti Smith, Brian Eno, coming out and using their quote-unquote celebrity status to lend some support to, to Julian's cause. But Vivian, being Vivian and being, as I say, a punk icon, is good at getting colour and movement happening. Thanks once again, Jacob. No worries, mate. And we'll hear more from Jacob on the program next week.